0: Tonight's reading will be from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 41. Now a man named Lazarus was sick from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him. Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples, told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. If anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go and, and get him. Then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the son of God who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as she heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary got up quickly and went out. So they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, Couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes have also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he's already been decaying. It's been four days. Jesus said to her, Didn't I tell you? That if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. This is the word
1: of the Lord, brothers and sisters. There's a, um, a ritual of marking the site of a fatal accident along interstates and highways with a cross. And this ritual, um, you may have noticed them, especially in the southeast. Um, Yeah, southwest. Um, They have deep roots dating back to ancient Spanish burial traditions. Um, They're called descansos. Memorials, or descansos, were traditionally the place where a funeral procession paused to rest on their way from the church to the cemetery. They were led by a priest, followed by female mourners, and usually four to six men carrying the coffin on their shoulders would grow weary. And they would pause, lower the coffin to the ground, and during this rest, the priest would say a prayer, the mourners would wail, and then the site would be marked by a makeshift cross or a pile of stones or maybe a sprig of flowers. After they rested, the men would hoist the coffin up on their shoulders again, and the procession would continue to the place of final rest, the cemetery. The journey was slow and laborious, and it gave them time to grieve, to contemplate the life and death. Descansos became places associated with a road traveled, a journey interrupted, and a final death. Present-day descansos are symbols that mark a resting place. They tell people right here on this spot, someone's journey in life halted unexpectedly. And Jesus describes Lazarus' death as a resting place a descanso rather than a finale to his life. Verse 11 said, says, after he said this, he went to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. And Jesus' statement confused his disciples because they thought he meant natural sleep, and so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. How do you and I experience death? We often think of death as some obscure obscure event in the distant future, um, a mystery, a finale to our life. But death is also woven into the fabric of our vibrant lives and can unexpectedly arrive any minute. Imagine for a moment your life is a highway with small crosses, descansos, marking where roads were not taken, a dead end, a dream never fulfilled, a journey that never arrived to its destination, paths cut off by betrayal, loss, or even death. We die a thousand deaths within our lifetime, some more profound than others, large and small, tragedies that must be grieved, honored and laid to rest tied to the earth how do we erect crosses honoring these resting places of our deepest loss it is through the full expression of grief a grief that is often layered and complicated and messy and uncomfortable and unpredictable jesus demonstrates how to be present with someone in their pain without fear or judgment or refusal Mary and Martha's hearts were shattered. They had just lost their brother to death, and they were fully human without social constraints in their interaction with Jesus. They both, at different times, run up to Jesus and say, what are you doing? Why are you late? Why did you allow this to happen? Yes, Jesus could have stopped their grief instantaneously, but... What does Jesus choose? He chooses to be fully present with them. He goes to them. He seeks them out in their grief. He holds them in his presence, and he says, yes, this is awful. This is heartbreaking. Let's cry together. He doesn't deny their reason for grief. He doesn't deny their emotion. He doesn't mock them. He doesn't correct them. He does not shame them. Neither does he say, everything's going to be all right, or let me fix this. No, Jesus weeps. The fully divine embraces and honors authentic emotional humanity. He does not view his daughters as dramatic, nor his sons weak in their grief. What if we were a people that allowed the feminine to experience an anchor in their rage and grief and sorrow. What if she heard, it's okay, you can grieve and cry and scream and I'll still be here. I might be uncomfortable with your expression of pain, but instead of trying to control and manage or solve what's making me uncomfortable, I choose to be present with you. What if we were a people that allowed the masculine to hear, you are free to feel everything you need to feel, and I will not back away from you or think less of you. You are perfect in your expression of pain. I acknowledge you and your grief, and I ascribe you worth and invalidate and your sorrow. We all need a love that says, I'm not just merely feeling sorry for you, but I feel the sorrow with you. This is love that weeps with those who weep. Christian Wyman is a poet and author with an incurable and unpredictable cancer. He writes in his quote, My Bright Abyss, quote, what one wants during extreme crisis is not connection with God, but connection with people, not supernatural love, but human love. No, that is not quite right. What one craves is supernatural love, but one only finds it within human love. This is why I am, such as I am, a Christian, because I can feel God only through physical experience. I can feel his love only in the love of other people. End quote. I believe all souls loves well through our people. Two women uh, told me separately this week that the first time they visited our church, they walked in as strangers, and they found themselves crying with no reason, except that they sensed love and belonging and healing here. It made me wonder how many times, for the first time, and maybe in their life, people feel this within our church We need human love to reach into the depths of our deaths, but not merely human love. We need transformative love, a love that is infused with the power of Christ that points us to hope. And this is the hope. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she, she told him. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was come into the world. Laying to rest our loss and our pain is transformative. The gracious inviting Jesus who is asking for you can conquer death, the death of paralysis and depression and sorrow and despair, when we are able to freely mourn our pain in his presence, his love not only lays our pain to rest, but it transforms our loss into new life. When, when Mandy's baby girl was six weeks old, she was diagnosed with a rare and malignant form of cancer in the eye. For years, they battled this cancer, and it ended up with Leela losing one of her eyes. They were constantly faced with the possibility that she would be permanently blind. Mandy, I talked to Mandy this week, and I asked her about her experience, because most of that was spent here at All Souls. She said, you know, I spent a lifetime of being clean on the outside, going to church, and my mom had always told me, don't air your dirty laundry. She said, grief felt like airing my dirty laundry. She said, I knew it wasn't, but that's what it felt like. There was many times she didn't want to talk about her grief. She told people, I'm fine, I'm good, don't, please don't come over. But it wasn't until they were proactive and in her presence that she realized just how much she needed them. Looking back on her long journey of grief, one filled with lament and anger and doubt, she said it was the presence of her community, daily walking with her family that got her through. Her mind was in such a spiral, she said, I couldn't pinpoint what I needed. I didn't even know. But it was the persistence of amazing people showing up and pushing her to places she didn't want to go that drew her to deeper faith in God. I asked her what she would say to all souls today if she could be here. She says, tell them God uses real people to get us to the real places of transformation. Today, thankfully, Leela is healthy and cancer-free, and Mandy uses every opportunity to tell of God's faithfulness and healing, especially to families at St. Jude battling cancer. The raising of Lazarus is a picture of what Jesus does for all of his own. Those who trust in him already have eternal life. Christ erects the descansos in our lives. They are visible memorials of death conquered by his resurrected life. This is for God's glory, so that we can look back on the highway of our life and say, "See there, see that cross there. That's the time God pulled me out of the depths of despair, out of the grave, and gave me new life. To God be the glory."
2: Thank you, Paige. Jesus spends a lot of time in Bethany, and that's where the healing of Lazarus takes place. Uh, It becomes a kind of a refuge for him. Uh, It's a little farming village about two miles up the Jericho Road on the southwest slope of the Mount of Olives, And we see Jesus often returning to Bethany, particularly to Mary and Martha's house. Lazarus lived with them often too. Uh, We see him uh, come, for example, to stage the triumphal entry. When he prepares for his last week of his life, he starts from their house. In the middle of that week, when he uh, turns over the temple or turns over the chairs in the temple, he comes back at night to their house. Uh, After the resurrection... He goes to Bethany to be ascended into heaven. And so Bethany becomes this, uh, this refuge for him, and Mary and Martha particularly become some of his closest friends. Now, it's easy to read a text like this, like a modern play, and think, well, that's kind of neat. Um, but remember what we've been learning about what relationships between Jewish rabbi, single Jewish rabbis in the first century were like. They, they, they didn't exist. Uh, single Jewish rabbis did not speak with Jewish women. And so really what you have in here, again, is Jesus modeling a radical revolution, a scandalous way of having women friendships uh, that would have just been unthinkable in the period. But one of the things that, that really struck me as I was thinking about it this week in this passage is... The way that Mary and Martha talk to each other, uh, or rather to Jesus. And again, that may seem kind of familiar to us, but it would have been very unknown to the people who read this in the first century. Well, the first part, not so much. Mary uh, sends to Jesus and says, I've got a need here. My brother's dead. Would you come heal him? That would have been uh, acceptable. But then Martha, as Paige pointed out, expresses both her anger and her faith at, at Jesus. She is entirely transparent and emotional. That kind of interaction wouldn't have been welcomed by a Jewish rabbi. Uh, Martha makes this powerful affirmation of faith, really the first at this point in the Gospel of John uh, where someone clearly proclaims the risen Christ. That was in a day when women couldn't go into the synagogue. Mary also expresses her anger. And, And what happens after that is so profound. Mary... Instead of Jesus patting her on the shoulder and saying, yes, dear, and sort of patronizing her, and Mary is welcomed into his own heart and he is deeply troubled to the point that he weeps. He allows himself to be so moved by the concerns of this young woman that he is broken down. And then there's even the silly little detail that I love later in the, I would love to know Martha because the Lord is healing Lazarus. You know, one of the big moments in the Gospels. You know, this is a highlight, real miracle here. You know, we'd be talking about it for a long time. And Martha decides to tell him that his biology is off and that the guy's stinking and that didn't he know that? And, and yada, yada, yada. And Jesus just kind of puts up with her bad theology. So Jesus. Mary and Martha have a close, caring relationship where the women felt free to speak their minds, share their feelings, and even be wrong. And Jesus was so open to being impacted by their voice that he wept over it. And I think that this is a great little picture of what the church can be, that the church should be a similar kind of community where women feel invited and empowered and welcome to speak into and impact their brothers. In other words, we should love well. Now, I think that this is an area where the church has a lot of growing left to do. You may have uh, read about Rachel Den Hollander, she was the last victim to speak at Larry Nasser's trial, the uh, doctor who abused all the gymnasts. And what went viral was her beautiful uh, forgiveness of the doctor and really sharing of the gospel. It was a, power, a powerful picture of, of love and forgiveness. But what didn't go viral was the backstory. And Christianity Today interviewed her and, um, and asked her what had happened moving up to that. And um, the, the young woman said that she lost her church in the process, because when she spoke out and began to talk about sexual abuse and advocate for some of the survivors, uh, one elder told her to stop reading angry blogs. Uh, Eventually, she was told, uh, and her husband, who's a seminary student, that they were no longer welcome in the church. She said to Christianity Today, it is with deep regret that I say that the church is the last place to go for help for a victim of sexual abuse. Two weeks ago, a prominent pastor posted a blog that said that women should not be able to be permitted to teach at seminaries because uh, pastors should be led by men, and women can't teach men how to lead uh, other men. Now, regardless of how you read the Pauline texts, uh, there is no moral universe in which that is an appropriate uh, statement. It It is misogynist and should be condemned. And this man is not of the lunatic fringe. He regularly speaks to 25,000 college students at an annual evangelical Christmas conference. Studies show that it is still very difficult for women to use their voices in our culture. One study I read this week uh, shows that in our culture, men are rewarded when they are angry and assertive uh, and seen as strong, bold leaders, whereas women are are seen in, use your, your word, not, not positively when they are angry. Uh, women's voices, actually, I read in one, stu- one stu- study, have lowered in the past 20 years. The actual pitch of their voice is lowered because uh, people have realized that a higher voice diminishes a woman's authority and a man's receptiveness to it. Now, how about closer to home? Uh, Well, here at All Souls, I was in a meeting some time ago with a mixed group, and afterwards, one of the women who I'd been talking to about um, women finding their voice emailed me, and she said, did you notice how often the women in the room minimize their statements? In other words, they put before them something like, you know, I'm not really sure this is right, or I probably shouldn't say this, or I could be wrong, you know, something that sort of took away the uh, the authority of it. And then she said, she said, "Do you you think maybe they don't feel free to use their voice?" I'm Not proud of this one, but I was in a meeting some time ago. Actually, it was a classroom setting. We were teaching on social justice. Uh, a woman who I respect greatly was. Uh, speaking. She's um, well-educated, brilliant, uh, excellent teacher. And something came up and she got very animated. Actually, she became very passionate. And the pitch of her voice rose and I watched myself and every man in the room, I think, emotionally leave because our mother was in the room. I'm not proud of that, but that's often how Women are responded to, and they're passionate. There's a a woman friend that I've been having this conversation with, and we've been doing some dream work, and a a big theme in her dreams has been finding her voice, and she's been finding her voice and and using it, and I'm around her a lot, and you know, so I'm experiencing some of that change. Well, I had a dream about her, and um, she was smoking a cigar in the office, and in the dream I said, would you please put that cigar out? And she said, no. And as I prayed about that, uh, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to figure that one out, right? Um, Is uh, I don't like her using her voice. Um, It worked better for me when she was muzzled. There's a book called Just Listen that talks about three levels of listening. The first level is listen to figure a person out. The second level is listen to understand And the third level is listen so the person feels felt. And so I think that's the kind of listening that we're we're talking about here. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 says that men and women were created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. And that's talking about a great mystery. I don't mean to understand it all, but it points that in some level, God is both male and female. I mean, obviously, God's beyond gender. I don't understand how all of that works. But if we are creating the image of God, male and female, and that reflects the image of God, it means that God himself is somehow male and female. And one of, one of the reasons why I'm encouraged by the way God is restoring women's voices to his church is because when men and women listen to each other in both Bring into conversations and leadership their unique perspectives. I think we more fully reflect the Trinitarian dance. I think for years the church has been out of balance with uh, with just the masculine side of the Godhead. But if we if we add the woman side, I think we get a fuller and more Trinitarian uh, conversation going in the church. Now. I, you can disagree with me. You have probably disagree with a lot of what I've said in this series. I'll go to my grave, believe in this one. I think men and women are different. I I don't buy this thing that, that's just cultural. I've had three girls and a boy, uh, and they were different the second they popped out. <laughs> I just think they're different. I think women bring unique gifts and skills to leadership. I think men bring unique gifts and skills to leadership. They're not better. Not worse, but they're different. And in case you haven't noticed, the church has a marketing problem. Um, The church in the West at least is collapsing. Every study shows that uh, by incredible staggering numbers, the younger generations are running in droves from uh, at least the institutional church. And one of the reasons why I'm hopeful is I think God's restoring women to their proper place in the church to show us how to lead in a different way, and relate to the world in a different way. I I, I think it's for such a time as this. And here's an illustration from the the business world. There was a study done of Fortune 500 leaders uh, and their companies just before and after the recession. And what they found was, is that the companies that had primarily male leadership grew aggressively prior to the recession, and then uh, really struggled afterwards. But the, the companies that had uh, female leadership grew less aggressively prior to the recession, but then actually sustained and weathered the, uh, uh, the recession better than the companies that were led by men. And uh, the TED Talk person was saying that this was because of their different leadership styles were more adaptive to the crisis and the challenge. Um, so... A little homework assignment for us guys. I want you to ask one woman from your private life and one woman from your work life this question. How well do I listen to you? How well do you feel listened to in our organization? I had a friend, I was going through this with a Bible study in another group. He doesn't go here, but he runs a pretty large company. And and uh, like most men, this is kind of for free here. Here's been my experience over these six weeks. Most men think we're doing better than the women think we are. Just kind of uh, throw that out there. But he thought he was doing pretty good. And so he went to a woman in his organization and he said, let me just ask you something. What's it like to, to work here? Do you ever experience this? And... She told him she did, and told him a very specific situation that she found disrespectful, and and uh, they they changed it. So that's your homework assignment, guys. Um, I'll end with something that happened this morning. That's just kind of a, a fun little way to illustrate this theme. I don't know if uh, how many of you know Paul Hassel. Paul is a, a wonderful uh, young man, Paul and Nora, in our church, and they have three three kids, and they don't often come at night. They have a hard time with their little ones getting out at night, but they come in the morning. And God has begun to do something with Paul and Nora around healing. And I've honestly never seen anything quite like what is happening to him, uh, and that he's praying for sick people and they're being healed. Now, I know we can talk about that and say, well, I, I know it's happening in Africa, but this is something Paul is actually videoing. Videoing. How do you say video? Videoing. Uh, filming. Let's go with filming. <laughs> and uh, he, I just saw one the other day. A guy came out to fix his car, and uh, the guy says he's got a level nine and pain in his back as he's fixing Paul's car. Paul says, Can I pray for you? And uh, at the end, he films the guy. The guy says it's down to a two. You know, And this is happening again and again and again. I've never seen anything quite, quite like it. And so this morning, I've had a very minor physical uh, thing going on. And so I, I'm sitting down after the Sunday school class. And uh, Paul's there, and Flora is there. Flora is four, and uh, a delightful young lady. You look at her, you remember her grandmother, uh, um, Suzanne. And so I tell Paul what I'm struggling with, and uh, Paul says, Flora... Pray for Pastor Doug. And I thought, well, this is kind of cute. You know, let me just kind of, <laughs> here, honey, sure, sure. And so she just puts her little little hand on my neck. Just, Jesus, heal his dizziness. And then runs off. And at that moment, a little bit of my affliction was lifted. And I felt better all day long. And I thought, man, what a beautiful picture when a four-year-old woman brings the most powerful word of the day. Can I get an amen? Okay, let's pray.